0: Welcome to 5th Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Ari Mir, the CEO and co-founder of Fifth Wall portfolio company, Clutter. We discuss Clutter's door-to-door self-storage platform and how technology-enabled warehouses have impacted the industry and the software Clutter has developed to organize its facilities. Ari also shares trends the company is seeing as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, including mass migrations out of Manhattan and San Francisco, Finally, Ari shares his vision for the future of storage, which involves a shared marketplace where customers can rent items through Clutter's platform. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Ari, uh, thank you for joining. Um, you definitely won the award for coolest background uh, for a Zoom call.
1: <laughs> thank you. Uh, this is a, a painting I live with. It's by an LA artist named Joshua Nathanson.
0: It's oh, really cool. Um, Thank you. uh, Well, to start, maybe, can you just give people a bit of background on yourself and clutter and its business and what what you do?
1: Sure. So I've lived in LA for most of my life. I went to USC, studied business there, and I began my career as a product manager at an internet company in LA called Shopzilla, which eventually exited to Scripps and East Coast Publishing Company. Um, At the time, I was running their multivariable testing platform for them and working for a really talented founder named Farhad. Um, I then went on to work at another internet company in LA called Lore My Bills, which was founded by Matt Coffin, another really talented entrepreneur. Uh, That company exited to Experian, the credit agency, and I was at the time really acting within the capacity of a GM running their auto insurance protocol for them. After working for two really talented founders, I got the entrepreneurial bug myself and decided to co-found my first venture backed startup, an ad network that is still in business today over a decade later called GumGum. GumGum is one of the world's largest ad networks. uh, And I I started the business and, and helped run it for about five years and then ultimately decided I wanted to move to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, I co-founded my second venture-backed startup, this time a mobile ad network called Pocket Change that Google funded from start to finish. And uh, to be honest, I never found product market fit with that startup, and I failed. And it was really when I was winding down the business, looking to move back to San Francisco, that I stumbled upon kind of moving storage and found it to be a fascinating category and then co-founded clutter uh in 2015 although we came up with the idea in 2013 but the business really wasn't fully operational until 2015
0: got it and and just help people understand like kind of what clutter does i mean i think everyone intuitively understands it's it's kind of almost virtual self-storage but that can mean a lot of things and i think clutter has taken a lot of i think really unique approaches to that so can you kind of unpack the business a little bit
1: sure so you know people refer to our value prop as virtual self storage or on demand storage. We like to call it door to door storage. And what that means is, you know, you push a button and we show up at your home. We send professional movers that we hire, train and manage ourselves. They're uniformed and they walk through your door and you point out the items that you want to put into storage. And we will begin by photographing and cataloging the items so that six months or six years from now, you don't forget that you have that golf bag with us. And then we will wrap the item using packing materials that we provide, um, cardboard boxes, wardrobe boxes, moving blankets, etc. And then using our fleet of vehicles, hopefully you've seen them, they're these large teal trucks that say clutter on the side. Uh, we will transport your items to one of our safe, secure, and smart uh, facilities. These are typically very large warehouses outside the city. Uh, akin to an Amazon distribution center where we uh, control the space, we safely store your stuff. And once it's in our four walls, you can go to clutter.com and you get a beautiful photo catalog of everything that you have in storage. And today you're one click away from having an individual item like your golf bag returned to your doorstep the next day or all of your items returned uh, to your doorstep or your next home whenever you like and the future vision is that these smart warehouses allow you to do more than just put stuff into storage and pull stuff out of storage the idea is with one click you can dispose your stuff donate your stuff sell it maybe ship your skis to your house in aspen because you're going to go there for a few months Um, so that's really kind of the value prop today in the long-term vision
0: it's really interesting and it's interesting you know, hearing you describe it because it's like on the one hand you can conceptualize conceptualize it as like the virtualization of stuff, but if you look at it more from like a real estate lens, there's something um, that 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 feels very thematic that we see throughout real estate tech, which is this concept of space and location becoming more amorphous, right? Like I think about you know self storage pre clutter as being like well. I'm going to take my sofa to a self-storage facility within five miles of me because anything longer than that is too annoying. But really, it almost feels like you have all these advantages by you know, being able to store stuff together right, and capture almost like the geographic arbitrage and have stuff being able to go anywhere. It's almost like you've, you've removed place from the concept of self-storage. Is that kind of how you think about it?
1: That's exactly right. I mean, if you have the convenience of clutter, which is we pick up stuff at your doorstep and we bring stuff back to your doorstep, why do you care where it's stored? You know, if you live in Pacific Palisades, do you really need a, a, a big ugly self-storage building uh, walking distance to where you live? No, you'd rather have a park there or maybe a cafe, um, you know, something that the, the community can benefit from. Uh, so what we, what we like to do is store your stuff in in industrial zones uh, where Walmart exists, Amazon exists, um, you know, where real estate companies like Prologis have a lot of uh, available space for us. And, you know, I I remember when we first pitched Sequoia uh, for our series A, one of the things that they were keen to notice um, before anyone was that what we were doing was using technology to, provide, to leverage a business model innovation. It wasn't that it was a technical innovation, it was that there was a business model innovation, and what that innovation was, was that you don't need to store your stuff three to five miles from where you live. Now, the reason why this didn't work as a model five, 10, 20 years ago when some of the incumbents tried it, is it turns out you need to build a lot of software. Not to lose stuff, to make sure routes are on time, to make the economics as profitable as possible. And so, you know, my background's always been in software. And when I looked at, you know, the category and realized that there was an opportunity to apply technology to leverage this business model innovation, it just made perfect sense to me.
0: And I imagine also like a component of it is the densification of space. I remember you describing like how you, um, use these large warehouses and how you pack things into them. And It's, it's almost like a high tech Tetris game, right? <laughs> at, at some level, and I, it is. I
1: actually use the word Tetris all the time to describe. It. Yeah,
0: but I, but I contrast that like you know when when I had my stuff in a self storage facility, I would like open the gate, and I feel like it was like Indiana Jones entering the Temple of Doom. Like the sofa was going to fall on you, or boxes were going to crash down. Clearly, nothing was optimized. I mean. How much of it is technology around that? Like, how do you store stuff most efficiently based on both the type of stuff but also the dimensions of the stuff and how consumers request it and use it?
1: Sure. So, you know, before I answer that question, I'll, I'll share a funny story with you. When we started the business, obviously we didn't have enough capital to get our own warehouses like we do now. And so we were pretty resourceful and we reached out to warehouses throughout the Southern California area and asked if we could have a small section of their warehouse for our business. And one of our first warehouses um, was in downtown LA and it was a multi-level warehouse. I think there was three or four stories, if I remember correctly. And we were on one, but what was interesting was on another floor was the actual warehouse that they used in Indiana Jones for that scene where they store, um, I think it was the grail or, you know, uh, one of the artifacts that they discovered. That's, that what, that's what I was monster.
0: referring to actually. Like yeah. that scene where boxes and rocks are falling everywhere. Um, that's right.
1: Yeah, so that's actually, it was shot at the same warehouse funny enough. Um, <laughs> you know, to give you, I'll, I'll give you kind of two examples of, just two examples of, you know, how we use software. So first of all, I think the important thing to note about clutter is You know, we believe in vertical integration, and that goes all the way down to the software stack. And so everything that we use is proprietary. Other than, like, Slack, Zoom, and Gmail, we've built it all. Uh, To give you an extreme example of what I'm talking about, you know, we uh, employ a wide variety of hourly team members in the field, in the warehouse, in our call centers. And they're employees, but, you know, they're compensated hourly. So it's important to track their hours. I think most companies, most entrepreneurs would just take some off-the-shelf uh, you know, time-clocking software and use it. You know, we actually built our own software to help our team members uh, track their times, schedule shifts, swap shifts, uh, and the reason why we did that is not because we have some sort of aversion to third-party software, but we knew from a very early stage that data would ultimately allow us to deliver a better customer experience, to increase our margins so we could lower prices and offer the same value or more value at those lower prices. And data has really been key to everything that we do. You know, another example of how we leverage technology is really in the warehouse, like you were alluding to. When you have a half a million square feet and it's racked 40 feet high, Right, that's effectively four stories. And someone goes on clutter.com and says, I want, you know, uh, this one box back because it has my college mug in it and I'm feeling sentimental. It's going to be pretty hard to find that mug if you don't have your own software and you don't know exactly where it is in that warehouse. Right. You know, we're talking in a, in a warehouse of that size, you're probably. Push in six figures in terms of the number of items that are being stored. So now you're being asked to find a single mug and there's just no off the shelf software that's gonna facilitate that. Like the reality is, is that you know, we are a technology company that uh, operates a supply chain and every supply chain is unique. And so the idea that you're gonna take off the shelf software to manage your unique supply chain was always crazy.
0: Yeah, and and I imagine there's also just When you talk about people's stuff, there's a there's an intimacy, there's a sentimentality that that probably you can almost use predictively. Meaning, you can probably assume no one wants their skis in the summer, right? There's certain like intuitions you can follow. But I'd be curious if there's any like just almost counterintuitive things. Like what what's the stuff that people request most frequently from storage?
1: you know, we had all these assumptions when we started the business and for the most part, they proved to be true. One of them was that people would use us seasonally and lo and behold, every Halloween, you know, demand for what we call, you know, sub jobs, which are really just pickups and deliveries increases. And it's exactly what you would think, you know, the fake pumpkin, maybe a box of costumes and same thing for, you know, Christmas, um, You know, in terms of items that we probably didn't think people would store, you know, we knew people would obviously store everything in their homes. We just didn't know people had that many mattresses. Uh, (laughs) 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 It has blown my mind how many mattresses people own. You know, we have entire sections of the warehouse just full of mattresses. and, uh, and so it's been really interesting to see kind of consumer behavior. It also varies geo by geo in Los, it in Los Angeles or in Los Angeles, we have a lot of refrigerators being stored. Yeah. And um, in New York, we don't, you know, and I think it's something about how landlords operate and, and kind of their social contract with, their tenants, you know, in, in, in one city, they they provide the, the refrigerator and another city they don't.
0: Right. That's so interesting. And there's two other things I wanted to ask you about with respect to your business. Um, one is you made this decision to vertically integrate, right, and, and be a, a full stack storage delivery moving solution. Um, I'd love to hear the rationale of how you thought that through. And then almost tying that into my next question, which is, You kind of went into real estate, right? Like now you, to some extent, uh, you own the very assets that at the outset, I would have thought you're trying to disrupt. I'd love to hear that logic of how you thought about making that decision to go into self-storage itself.
1: Early on, it, it, it was obvious to me that we were, as I mentioned earlier, a technology company that was going to have to learn how to manage a supply chain. And so I asked myself, what are the world's largest supply chains that are operated at a high degree of excellence? And Walmart came to mind. And and so I read Sam Walton's autobiography. And in it, he kept espousing all the benefits of vertical integration. And I realized, you know who else read this book? Jeff Bezos. I can promise you he read that book. In the very early days of Amazon, it's so obvious he read that book, and I said to myself, if it works for Sam, and it works for Jeff, it's probably going to work for Clutter. Why, you know, you know, try to be disrupt? Why try to be kind of contrarian just for the purpose of being different? And I, and I started thinking through, well, what are the benefits of vertical integration? I, I know what the you know drawbacks are. The drawbacks are it takes a ton of capital. And a lot of time, and it's really hard because, you know, if you're a software person like I am, you're going to have to learn a whole new um, set of skills that you would never have to learn if you're, you know, launching the next Instagram. But the, the benefits were overwhelmingly positive. One was, if you want to deliver reliable customer experience at a high level, you have to be in control. You cannot outsource your customer interactions to another company. You just can't. Um, you know, so you need to employ everyone. And by the way, it's also the right thing to do to give people workers' comp and health benefits and career growth opportunities. So we never used 1099 contractors. You know, I know now it's taboo to use them and everyone's employing everyone, but we were the first, actually, to begin employing our hourly team members. You know, the second benefit, um, you know, out, it, that's related to customer experience is when you have your own assets and you apply technology to them, you can leverage the data to improve the customer experience. To your point, if you expect the skis to be pulled right before winter season, move them around the warehouse so that they're easier to retrieve so you can get them to the customer faster, for example. Uh, you know, outside the customer experience, uh, but somewhat still related to the customer experience, the benefit of vertical integration is you capture all the margin at every step. And the point is, as Sam Walton describes or discusses, not to hoard the margin and be greedy, but to reinvest it in the customer experience by either offering more value or lower prices or somehow more value at lower prices. And that's how you truly create something meaningful, especially in a category that's commoditized, like storage is. Like if I'm gonna be intellectually honest, storage is a commodity. So what's the key to you know um, being a leader and innovating in, in a commoditized industry? I believe it's vertical integration. You know, because ultimately it comes down to, can you offer more value at lower prices? Um, So every little, you know, penny or nickel or dime that you share with someone else, I would argue, you know, be long-term greedy, build out the infrastructure so you you don't have to do that and reinvest that margin or that money into the customer.
0: It's interesting to hear you talk about that because it's something we see, in all of these new kind of tech-enabled real estate businesses and that is oftentimes overlooked by the real estate incumbents, which is the, the mentality, the psychology of being customer-centric, right? And being able to deliver a brand. Like, Clutter has a brand. People, everyone I talk to, they love Clutter. They see your trucks, they've maybe had a friend who's experienced and it's differentiated. Whereas, when you think about self-storage, I kind of think about, to be honest, the color orange, right? right? And there's no brand. Maybe I think about the color green because I've, I've driven by But I don't have, there's no sense of like, wow, that is a differentiated customer experience. And it's just interesting because we see that in so many spaces. You see it in office space, right? If you think about even what WeWork or what Industrious's core innovation was, it was layering in a, a brand that could delight the customer by being more full stack, by being more full service. Um, but I also wanted to ask you you're now in the self storage business and I'd love to hear (laughs) how did you think about that like what was that what was that epiphany that you almost wanted to go towards the space you're disrupting
1: sure so uh, to give everyone a little bit of context obviously we have our door to door business where we store uh, consumer household goods in large warehouses that we operate we or, you know, pursuing that model to effectively disrupt the incumbents. The incumbent model is called self-storage, not door-to-door storage. Self-storage is that big, you know, building that you see three to five miles from where you live that sometimes looks like a prison, uh, <laughs> you know, that you drive to yourself and you store your belongings there for as little as long as you want. That's a very big um Market that we're trying to disrupt to give your you know viewers a sense of how big the market is There are 55,000 of those buildings in the US alone if you take all the land that those buildings occupy and you add them up It's more land than every single McDonald's and Starbucks combined Okay, Um, so it's a lot of land being used for self-storage Now we own four of those buildings ourselves and you're probably asking yourself, well, why would you do that? You're acquiring the very asset you're trying to disrupt. And it's, you know, it's a, doesn't make any sense. Well, I agree. It's a little counterintuitive, um, but what we've realized through this journey is that the reason why people purchase storage or moving or whatever, you know, um, it may be is, that they're going through a life event it could be a death a divorce or a marriage or a birth in the family maybe they're enlisting in the military maybe they're moving from california to florida but they're going through these high stress high anxiety life events and our mission is to help them to make their lives more convenient some people need door-to-door storage because they're old or disabled or just, you know, frankly they value their time and and they don't want to do the work themselves. So they're happy to have our professional movers help them with the moving and packing process into storage. But there are other um, customers that want daily in-person access. They don't mind driving down the street to their self-storage building and, uh, you know, opening up that locker and and picking and packing their own stuff. Now, for us, the challenge was not, should we offer it? It was clear to us that if you care about the customer, what you wanna do is say yes to them as much as possible. And part of owning self-storage and including it in our portfolio of value props is being able to say yes more and more. The challenge was how do we differentiate it? Because to your point, If you look at the 55,000 buildings in the U.S. right now that are being used for self-storage, there's nothing differentiating any of them other than a coat of paint. There really isn't, if we're gonna be honest. So we looked at it and we said, well, what if you take this big supply chain that we've built and attach it to these buildings? What types of value could you offer the customer that you couldn't before can you have one plus one equal three, right? Um, And so, you know, our vision that we started uh, pursuing almost 12 months ago was to be able to do that. And I'll get into kind of what that vision is, but four months ago, we spent $150 million to purchase four self-storage assets, the land, the building, and the customers within the building in the New York metro area and over the past 12 months we've been working to not only offer self-storage and door-to-door to to our customers in the New York metro area but a way to seamlessly transition between the two. Mm -hmm. So what does that look like? Maybe you want in-person access but you don't have a truck and so you want us to help you move all your household goods into your self-storage locker and, uh, you know, the couch will sit there until you need us to move the couch for you. But the golf bag you can get yourself any day of the week, right? So we come, we use our supply chain to completely move you into a self-storage locker. You get movers, you get a truck. Um, we even give, we can even photograph and catalog your stuff for you. And then on a weekend, three weeks from now, you go and you grab the golf bag yourself. Or maybe, you know, uh, you 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 want us to dispose of something from your self-storage unit or ship something from your self-storage unit. These are all things that our supply chain can and will continue to be able to offer. And so it's really about giving the customer as much flexibility as possible. So you can say yes to them whenever they need you to do something.
0: It's a, it's and, uh,
1: and you'll see us do a number of other things over time, that I, I don't want to go into, it but it's going to be, a truly unique self-storage experience.
0: And, and it seems, it also, again, seems so consistent with, you know, just a macro theme that's just when you reimagine a business model, right? W- with that lens of customer centricity, with that lens of vertical integration, it, it enables you to approach the incumbent business model in a whole new fashion. And, and it's, it's sometimes interesting. interesting, like, you know, when I think about, like you said, self-storage, it's, it's a commodity product, right? The major innovation is a roof and a lock and everyone's got, it, right? So, you know, what could you bring to that? What could you lend to that? How could you augment that from a customer experience perspective by having the supply chain that you do? And I think that's why in a lot of spaces, people are shocked now when co-working companies are buying real estate buildings themselves they're buying office buildings themselves and it's actually with that same if that same logic that kind of holds true which is the unique perspective on the customer gives you that that opportunity to reimagine the actual disrupted business model which provides a growth panel that's that can be really accelerated um, i wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the interesting trends that you're seeing in light of what we're all living through right now, um, you know, I think about COVID and the the economic and sociological fallout from it as being profound, and we're in the early innings of that right now. And so, when I think about living space, right, like my my living space and the stuff in that space, is there any interesting trends around people wanting less or more stuff in their home in their residence? Given that now, like your work environment and your home environments have been conflated. Is there interesting trends you're seeing around that, like what people want in their home?
1: Sure. Demand for storage has gone up because of COVID. Right. And I think it's because of two reasons. One, you're going through life events, you're moving from one apartment to the next, that's usually when you need storage, right? Because you then look at all your stuff and you re-evaluate like, whether you want to live with it on a day-to-day basis or not. The other thing is, even if you're not moving, you're spending a lot of time in your home. So you look around and you're like, you know, I don't really play golf anymore, but that's a you know $800 golf bag uh, uh, instead of clubs. I'm not going to throw it away. <laughs> like, okay. Let's let's put it into storage. Um, and so the demand for storage has absolutely you know gone up. What we've also seen, which is really interesting, um, because of some of our partnerships is an increase in, you know, um, any type of commerce related to household goods. So people will look at their couch and be like, yeah, I never liked that couch. I should get a better couch. I'm on this couch now every day. (laughs) And so they're actually upgrading a lot of what they live with. We're seeing it in our data, and then also a lot of our e-commerce partners that focus on these types of goods are seeing it as well.
0: Huh, that's really interesting, and, you know, I think about when when it was early March, I think people didn't know how to respond. Um, my response was, I was in Los Angeles, and I drove out to Utah, where I am right now, um, and I've been here ever since, and um, I realized, why you know, why am I keeping my apartment in Los Angeles? So... I called it clutter and I didn't even go back. You guys took everything out of my apartment and <laughs> that one of your my mattress is stored amongst all the other mattresses in your warehouse. Um, yeah. I'm curious, are you seeing patterns like that? Like everyone right now is trying to guess like what are the big sociological shifts that are happening? Are, are are cities being abandoned? What is the future of cities? Is is this kind of trend towards urbanization now undermined or questioned in a way it hadn't, hadn't been before. What do you see just in the early data around what people are doing? Are people moving out of cities? Um, are they downsizing their houses? What are some of those trends you're seeing?
1: So for decades, urbanization was definitely a tailwind for a lot of categories, right? Uh, I would say that that's probably slowing down um but it's not quite what you think it's not that everyone's moving out of cities it's actually more interesting than that people are just moving from one city to another right Um, and i'm sad to say this because i love manhattan but all of our data shows everyone is leaving yeah and um you know if you're in real estate and you currently own in manhattan I, I, you know, I empathize. If you're in real estate and you don't, this is probably a good time to buy. <laughs> um, it, it's it's unbelievable how many people are living in Manhattan. And, but they're coming to L.A. or they're going to Miami or Austin. So it's not that urbanization is done. I just think the pattern of urbanization is going to change. Uh, and it's going to look a lot more like L.A., I think, everywhere, which is, you know, L.A. used to be a big ring. and it's just grown to be, you know, a ring within a ring within a ring. And now it's just this massive city. You know, Santa Monica to Fontana is 70 miles. Everyone considers that L.A. County. And right. so I think that's going to happen in Miami and in Austin. What's not going to happen is what's in kind of what, what we've seen in sci-fi movies for decades, which, are, you know, which is the Blade Runner effect, which is effectively Manhattan which is we all stay within a close proximity, but we go up. I think that is, It's. is, I'm not saying it's never going to happen, but it's definitely not going to happen in our lifetime anymore because
0: of COVID. Yeah, and I was thinking a lot about this, and I was talking about this with um, a Harvard professor that I, that I also interviewed. And it's interesting to think about how um, there are these cities that have historically been magnets for a certain kind of knowledge worker, and probably the most... Extreme examples of that are New York, right, which is a massive draw for finance knowledge workers, and San Francisco, uh, which is a massive draw for for tech workers. And you think about the winners and losers, because I agree with you, it's almost just like a reshuffling of the deck in terms of where knowledge workers are going. Many companies are saying they're gonna be virtual for a very long period of time. But it feels like, and I'm curious what you think about this intuition, it feels like to me, the easiest way to identify the cities that are net losers are where there's the highest spread between cost of living right and quality of life right like meaning right. and i think probably the most extreme would be san francisco right where oh, yeah. you know you have extreme cost of living and a city that's kind of like a baltimore philadelphia you know um, yes. yet rent that are like New York, right? Do you think that I, it seems like those are the cities that will net lose knowledge workers, but where do you think the net gain is happening and what do you think are the drivers of that? Like, do you think it's a Miami because of tax reasons or Austin for tax reasons? Or do you think it's a Salt Lake city or a Boise for lifestyle reasons? Like what do you think wins or who do you think wins?
1: Well, I lived in San Francisco between 2011 and 2013. It was bad back then, it's horrible now. Like, San Francisco is gonna contract for sure. Um, And I think, you know, people are gonna leave San Francisco um, at a higher rate than Manhattan, to be honest. Because Manhattan has so many other things that kind of, that pull people in. It's
0: New New York. York. It's New York,
1: decade after decade, it's the arts, it's everything. You know i still love manhattan uh, i think san francisco is going to contract and where i mean they're going to go to la they're going to go to austin they're going to go to miami i don't think they're going to go to boise wherever that is you know
0: you don't um, think so no <laughs> and you think one of the reasons that contracts is both what i said this kind of the you know cities where there's the most daylight between quality of life and cost of living but also i would think it's it's, it, it, there's, there's knowledge workers concentrated in San Francisco in an industry which will probably virtualize fastest and first, which is tech, right? I, I feel like I, I open the news every day now and another big tech company is saying, work from home forever. Um, right. And you're like, well, who, who does that impact? And you're like, well, that really impacts the peninsula of the Bay Area and San Francisco specifically. Um, yeah. And I'm curious also when, when you think about the future of, of storage and stuff, because it, it's kind of a, the idea of like what stuff means to the individual is, is kind of a fascinating thing to think about because of this intimacy and sentimentality. In a world where people are more mobile, right, and they're, they're moving episodically city to city, how do you think about self-storage as meeting that future state demand? is it really like you have your stuff in the cloud? Like there's kind of a, a cloud network of stuff yeah. that just comes and goes to you wherever you are?
1: Absolutely. And I'm not saying we're delivering that yet, but that's our vision. It's going to take a lot of work to get there. But, you know, what's interesting is I've been an entrepreneur for a very long time. And so I've seen other entrepreneurs pursue, you know, one category after another. And one of the categories that always fascinates was the shared goods economy. And it it interested me not in the Airbnb sense, but in the kind of household goods, shared goods economy. Because it was clear to everyone, including me, that there is an amazing value proposition there. But yet one entrepreneur after another failed. And no one has been successful. And it's because what what you need to build to solve that problem is a marketplace. The problem with pure marketplaces, is that they have a chicken and egg challenge, which comes first. And it's incredibly difficult to build a marketplace. eBay got lucky, Airbnb got lucky, but it's, there are only a handful of them. I've argued for the longest time that storage is the perfect you know, platform to launch a shared goods marketplace on top of. Today, in clutter, we store millions of household goods. If we wanted to, and we do, we're just not ready. If we allowed our customers via one click of the button to rent their bicycle or their lawnmower or, their, or to sh- you know, share um, or sell their artwork that's in storage you know, in, in a marketplace, you know, boom we will have overcome the chicken and egg problem that you that has kind of i think prevented a a true shared goods marketplace from being successful um so yeah i think if you if it's in the cloud you can do a bunch of things that you've never done before
0: what's interesting is to think about the corollary there between transportation right which is um there's a lot of similarities in the sense that you know Traditionally, you thought of owning a car. You owned your transportation. It was your property. It was only your car. It just happened to sit idle 95% of the day. And then, you know, Uber said, "Well, what if we actually make transportation a service?" It, it kind of undermines car ownership. And we, you know, we're seeing in the U.S. that car ownership probably peaked a few years ago. And I think ride sharing is, in large part, the canary in the coal mine. It kind of portended that that trend. And I think about like, you know, when I got out here, there's obviously stuff I had to do on my house. And I was like, I need to buy a drill. And so I went on Amazon and I bought a drill. Um, And that drill has been used once. Once. (laughs) um, And it may only be used once. And, you know, forgetting just the economic efficiency, just the environmental impact of that. If that drill could be utilized, you know, by many people, it, it almost, it's like this intersection of and that's why I was curious to ask you about stuff is like, it's this intersection of cloud-based things and cloud-based services and property and property rights. Right. Which is, there's a lot of things we don't need to own. We just want the service on demand. And do you view that as, um, do you view that as like the natural end state for clutter? Like a world where when I want to drill, I go to clutter and someone sends a drill to me. So I want to, I don't know, my my Christmas tree, right? Uh, A a fake Christmas tree. I don't need to buy that, I can just rent that. Is is that what you think ownership becomes in a world where everything is cloud-based, all your stuff is cloud-based? By
1: the way, my friend actually is storing his fake Christmas tree with clutter, funny enough. Um, So you have to take a step back and ask yourself, what do people own? People own three types of things. Um, They own junk, let's be real, right? They own stuff that has asset value, right? It could be um, an old chest or a golf bag. And then they own stuff that they have a sentimental attachment to. I, my hope is that we help people not need as much junk in their lives uh, and that we help them share the stuff that has asset value in their lives either for other people's benefit or for their own and that we protect their memories for as long as possible, you know? And I think what people often misunderstand about storage or about why one person owns one thing and another person doesn't is that when you look at an object, you cannot infer someone else's sentimental value,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? Uh, and so they think of it as junk. No, there is junk, but that's not junk, right? I think the perfect example of this is um, in the early days, I was walking a handful of venture capitalists through one of our warehouses. And there was an aisle with a lot of televisions. And most of them were new televisions that were big, and everyone understood why they were in storage. But then there was one of those old TVs, the, the ones that look like a cube, Mm-hmm. where the, the lens curves. And,
0: and, someone,
1: is yeah, and someone said, why is someone storing this junk? And another VC said, because I bet you it was in someone's college dorm room. Yeah. And I said, that's exactly right. That piece of junk is a time machine into their past. Mm -hmm. And not all junk is that, but some things are, and we view it as our responsibility to help people protect those things for as long as possible. You know, I actually have a a piece of artwork that's not worth anything that I used to have on my wall in San Francisco. I have it in Clutter, and I'm a minimalist. Um, And I have it in Clutter, and I've kept it because it reminds me of those two years of my life. And every now and then I log into Clutter.com, and I see a thumbnail image of it, and uh, it puts a smile on my face. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it's important to, I think, be nuanced about all this quote unquote stuff that's being yeah. stored.
0: It, it's interesting the way, the way you put that, because when I think about all the stuff that I have in storage, there are a few, I'd say precious few items that I have imbued with some kind of sentimental, emotional charge, right? The, the, the loss of it, uh, or the lending of it, would be terrible, right? Like I, I care about it. I don't need to have it every day, but I need to own it. It's important to me. Right. But that's five percent of the stuff that I have. Uh, yeah, I don't have absolutely. that kind of sentimentality with my mattress. Um, it, right. no, it is not. It is not pregnant. Pregnant with some emotional meaning for me. It's just a mattress. No. And yeah, hopefully I'm, not. <laughs> I'd probably rather sell um so so when i when i think about that it's it, it's almost has a profound effect on commerce and the economy right which is this notion of minimalism right of owning fewer things that we endow with meaning um and consuming less right and, and borrowing more and having more shared services um, That's right. which is a really fascinating insight, state and in some ways it's like if you were to if you were to think about that like a macro economist right you're like wow that has that leads to such higher levels of productivity, right? But also lower levels of production, right? Because right. you don't need to make as many drills. That's, um, exactly. that's probably a good thing. Um, yeah.
1: You still need to make the drill and sell it. To, but to your point, you don't need as many of them. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and also the other, other interesting thing is quality matters, right? Is, is yeah. the things we make, we want to be higher quality. We want to have more durability. Uh, meaning I brought the cheapest drill, but if you're right. you're you that things in utilization all over Utah um, right. Needs to be of a higher quality and craftsmanship and, and what we put into products matters more um, Yeah, anyway, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I feel like we've kind of meandered from from clutters core uh, business model to like what what is the philosophy of stuff and how does that change? Um, yeah, really Interesting perspective on it. so um well, thank you, Ari, for joining. I really enjoyed this. No, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Definitely. All right. See you, Ari. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.